0: Hey guys, this is Bree. You are listening to Brief, the podcast that summarizes all the books. Today we're covering Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. I'm really excited about it. It's my favorite Kurt Vonnegut book. It's weird, and it's awesome, and it's tragic, and I just love it. In this episode, we're going over major characters, context, and overview, and we'll cover chapters one through four. Okay, context and overview. Kerouac Vonnegut was born in 1922, he died in 2007, he was raised in Indiana and attended Cornell University. He has written 14 novels, this is his best-selling novel for sure. Some background on him, he enlisted in the US Army in 1943 and was deployed to Europe to fight in World War II. He was captured and was held as a prisoner of war during World War II captured by Germans at the Battle of the Bulge. So he was captured and taken to Dresden, Germany. He was kept in a slaughterhouse and the address was Slaughterhouse Five, which is why we have the name of this book. But he and the other soldiers that he was with were kept in a meat locker under the slaughterhouse and that's how they survived the bombing of Dresden. The bombing of Dresden was just so terrible it was british and american air force i don't really know all of the details but they bombed this city and killed no one really knows for sure later reports are showing now that it was probably 25 to 50,000 people but in this book and back when this book was written it was believed that 100 to 300,000 people were killed and it was just very tragic they were all you know civilians and prisoners of war who were killed. Okay, so some background on the book itself. The full title of the book is Slaughterhouse 5 or the Children's Crusade: A Duty Dance with Death. I'm going to read the whole title page. It has it has a, a lot of information on it. I'm just going to read it because it's really interesting. So it says Slaughterhouse 5 or the Children's Crusade: A Duty Dance with Death by Kurt Vonnegut a fourth-generation German-American now living in easy circumstances on Cape Cod and smoking too much, who, as an American infantry scout, as a prisoner of war, witnessed the firebombing of Dresden, Germany, the Florence of the Elbe, a long time ago, and survived to tell the tale. This is a novel, somewhat in the telegraphic, schizophrenic manner of tales, of the planet Tralfalmador, where the flying saucers come from. Peace. So... Like I said, very interesting, very weird, very tragic. So Slaughterhouse-Five was published in 1969. It's science fiction, dark humor, it's satirical, and it's considered semi-autobiographical. The unnamed narrator of the book is Vonnegut himself, and the narration follows the life of Billy Pilgrim, a fictional character who survived the bombing of Dresden during World War II. Slaughterhouse-Five is an anti-war book, and its anti-war message resonated with the generation in 1969 who were very affected by the Vietnam War at the time. And Vonnegut said later of the book, he said, The loss of confidence in government that Vietnam caused finally allowed for an honest conversation regarding events like Dresden. So Vietnam allowed him to finally tell this story in a way that people would understand and not you know push to the side because it was anti-war so in the Franklin library edition of this book in the introduction there's a part that I want to read to you guys it says the Dresden atrocity tremendously expensive and meticulously planned was so meaningless that only one person on the entire planet got any benefit from it I am that person I wrote this book which earned a lot of money for me and made my reputation such as it is. One way or another, I got two or three dollars for every person killed. Some business I'm in." All right, I'm gonna jump into major characters. So the narrator, like I said, is unnamed, but it is Kurt Vonnegut himself, and he writes in the third person, The narrative follows Billy Pilgrim, who was a fellow soldier from the war, supposedly, but he is a fictional character that Vonnegut made up. But Vonnegut was actually there during the bombing of Dresden, and we see his character briefly a couple of times throughout the book. He mentions, you know, that was actually me. So the protagonist of the story is Billy Pilgrim. Billy has the ability to travel through time forward and backward, although he has no control over where or when he goes somewhere. It, they explain it as being unstuck in time, so he'll go to sleep one night and wake up in Germany or, you know, on the planet where he was abducted, which we'll get into. He is an optometrist who served in World War II. He survived the bombing of Dresden. He is considered weak and other soldiers look at him as a sort of joke. When he comes back from the war, he suffers from PTSD. He thinks that he's going crazy, which he kind of is. And he believes that he has been abducted on the night of his daughter's wedding. He was abducted by an alien life form called the Tralfamadorians. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I don't know if there's actually a correct way to say it, but the planet is Tralfalmador and the people are Tralfalmadorians. So after the war, he gets married, has two kids, becomes an optometrist, goes a little crazy, thinks he's been abducted by aliens, but the story follows his life. I guess another character you could consider are the Trial They are an alien life form. They are green and they look like like a toilet plunger is how they're described, but on the top of the toilet plunger is a hand that has an eye and they're green. So you can Google what a Tralfalmadorian looks like. There's a lot of cartoon drawings of them. But yeah, basically looks like a toilet plunger with a hand for a head. Okay, and the last person I'm going to talk about is Kilgore Trout. He is not really in the book, except that he, Billy Pilgrim, is sort of obsessed with him. He is a science fiction writer, a failed science fiction writer. He has you know like 40 novels that he wrote or something crazy like that but they are all terrible writing but the stories are really good according to Billy Pilgrim he really likes his stories even though the writing is terrible and he actually Kilgore Trout actually appears in a lot of other Kurt Vonnegut books like in The Breakfast of Champions he's the main character Billy loves Kilgore Trout's books and it seems like a lot of his stories about the Tralfalmadorians come from Kilgore Trout's books. Okay, the themes in this book I'm just going to mention briefly here are death, war, and time. Those are the themes I'm going to talk about in the end. Okay, so now I'm going to jump into chapter summaries. Chapter one opens with this line, All this happened more or less, which from the beginning tells us that this narrator is a little unreliable, but more or less all of this happened. So this first chapter is a sort of preface to the novel. The narrator, Kurt Vonnegut, is telling us how he came to write this story and his own experience in Dresden and how he's been writing about Dresden ever since he left, but this is the first time he's actually made a novel out of it. In 1967, more than 20 years after the bombing of Dresden, Kurt Vonnegut travels back to Dresden with his friend from the war, Bernard V. O'Hare. They make friends with a taxi driver who takes them to the slaughterhouse where they were kept in Dresden. The taxi driver's name is Gerard Mueller, and they talk to him about communism. They find out that Gerard's mother was incinerated in the Dresden firestorm, and this is the first time that Kurt Vonnegut uses the line, so it goes, and he uses this over and over throughout the novel. Anytime any sort of death is mentioned, whether it's a person or an animal, he says after, so it goes. This phrase seems to come from the planet Tralfalmador and how they believe in time, their theory of time and death, which you'll find out later, but anytime death is mentioned, the narrator says so it goes so Vonnegut tells us in this chapter how difficult it was for him to write about Dresden he thought it would be very easy to write about because all it would require of him was to just report on what he'd seen and he thought that this book about Dresden would be a masterpiece but when he sat down to write about Dresden no words came to his mind that was a long time ago that it happened so now he thinks you know now he's saying this story is what happened to me, but my memory is old and unreliable. And he calls his memory of Dresden useless. That's another way of him being like, hey, I'm actually an unreliable narrator. (laughs) I was there, but it was a long time ago. I don't remember. I'm old. So Vonnegut says that people always ask him what he is working on. And he always says a book about Dresden. And one man asked if it was an anti-war book. And Vonnegut tells him it is and the man told him he might as well write an anti-glacier book. On page three he says what he meant of course was that there would always be wars that they were as easy to stop as glaciers. So the older he got the more nights he stayed up drinking and he talks about how he used to drunk dial his old friends and old girlfriends late at night using the telephone operator. So it's like a 1960s drunk dial, he would pick up the phone and ask the telephone operator to be connected to a certain person. And one night he called his friend Bernard O'Hare for the first time since the war, and he asked if he could come and see him and talk to him about Dresden. O'Hare agrees, but he says he can't remember much about it either. Vonnegut is excited to go and see him, but he is thinking about what a good climax for the novel would be, and he thinks that it would be the story of Edgar Derby. It says on page five, the irony is so great. A whole city gets burned down, and thousands and thousands of people are killed, and then this one American foot soldier is arrested in the ruins for taking a teapot, and he's given a regular trial, and then he's shot by a firing squad. Anyway, he creates a detailed outline of the story on wallpaper, With different colors for each character and lines connecting them and it was beautiful but no writing came from it and he talks about his life after the war which he did a variety of things he was an anthropology student a police reporter a PR man for General Electric he realizes how little people know about Dresden and he finds out that Dresden is actually still classified as top secret he can't figure out who they're keeping it a secret from and why So, in 1964, he goes to visit his friend, Bernard V. O'Hare. Bernard's wife, Mary, doesn't like Kurt Vonnegut at all, and it's very apparent that she's angry at him for something. And she finally reveals that she doesn't want him to write about Dresden and portray the soldiers as men when they were really just babies. She doesn't want it to be another puff piece, glamorous about the war, where the movie version will star Frank Sinatra or John Wayne, She believes that wars are partly encouraged by books and movies. So Vonnegut promises Mary that he will not glorify war in his writing and he'll call the book The Children's Crusade. Which remember the full title is Slaughterhouse-Five The Children's Crusade. So a couple years later he gets a book deal and the first book will be his Dresden book. He gives the book to his publisher with a note. On page 19, it says, It is short and jumbled and jangled, Sam, because there is nothing intelligent to say about a massacre. Everybody is supposed to be dead, to never say anything or want anything ever again. Everything is supposed to be very quiet after a massacre, and it always is, except for the birds. And what do the birds say? All there is to say about a massacre. Things like, pooty wheat In the end of this chapter... Vonnegut recounts a night he spent in a Boston hotel on his way to Dresden. He recalls that time seemed to be distorted that night. It would not pass. It just stood still. On page 20, he says, There was nothing I could do about it. As an earthling, I had to believe whatever clocks said. So he reads the Bible beside his bed, and he reads about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he likens himself to Lot's wife. So short version of the story of Lot's wife is basically that they were commanded by God to leave the evil city of Sodom and Gomorrah and never look back. And God tells them, when you leave, don't even look back or I'll turn you to a pillar of salt. So they flee, but as they do, Lot's wife turns back and looks longingly at the city she didn't want to leave. And as God promised, she's turned to a pillar of salt. Vonnegut thinks about this. And he respects Lot's wife. He says on page 22, I love her for looking back because it was so human. He says that people aren't supposed to look back, and he isn't going to anymore. He says he's done with the war book. He's not looking back. And he says on page 22, this one is a failure, and it had to be, since it was written by a pillar of salt. And he says that it begins with Billy Pilgrim and ends with birds saying, poo tee Chapter 2 opens with this line, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. So like I said, Billy travels randomly through time. The narrator says that he goes to sleep as a widower and then wakes up on his wedding day. He is constantly afraid of walking into another time. He never knows where he'll wake up or what he'll walk into. Billy was born in Ilium, New York in 1922 he started optometry school before he was drafted into World War II. And while he was away at war, his dad died in a hunting accident. The narrator says, so it goes. Like I said, this is said throughout the novel over and over again, anytime someone dies. And we find out later that it's a phrase Billy learned from the Trial So during the war, Billy is taken as a prisoner of war by the Germans. He was saved and discharged from the Army in 1945. He became an optometrist after the war. He married Valencia, who is the daughter of the president of the Optometry School. So he married wealthy. He suffers heavily from PTSD after the war. He has a nervous breakdown. He is treated with shock therapy. He has a wife and a son and a daughter. His daughter is named Barbara. She married an optometrist, obviously. His son is Robert, and he fought with the Green Berets in Vietnam. In 1968, Billy survives a plane crash. He and the co-pilot are the only survivors. During his recovery, his wife dies in an accidental carbon monoxide poisoning. So it goes. Billy's daughter visits him every day after this. One night, Billy escapes to New York City, and he reports to a radio show in the middle of the night that he was abducted by aliens in nineteen sixty seven on the night of his daughter's wedding. He says that he can travel in time, that he was taken to the planet Tralfalmador by its people, the Tralfalmadorians, and on page twenty five it says displayed naked in a zoo. He was mated there with a former Earthling movie star named Montana Wildhack. So that's his story. His daughter Barbara goes to get him. She's super concerned about him because obviously he's going crazy, but he insists that it's all true. Billy writes to a local newspaper about his abductions. His letter was published. So in the article, he wrote about how the trial Falmadorians abducted him. He describes them as looking like toilet plungers with a hand on top that had one eye. On page 26, it says the creatures were friendly and they could see in four dimensions. They pitied Earthlings for being able to only see three. Billy hopes that his knowledge of time will help other people understand. And he says that time to the Tralfalmadorians is fluid. So when a person dies, they're not really dead because they're alive in the past. On page 27, it says all moments, past, present, and future, always have existed, always will exist. So... What they mean by this is that a dead person may be dead in this moment, but they are very much alive in plenty of other moments. On page 27, Billy says, Now when I myself hear that somebody is dead, I simply shrug and say what the Tralfalmadorians say about dead people, which is, so it goes. So Billy believes that this knowledge will help comfort many people who have lost loved ones, and he tries to talk to his daughter about it, but he fails. At the time, he's only 46, But his daughter thinks that he is senile. She says to him, if this is all true, why did you never mention it before the plane crash? And Billy says, I didn't think the time was right. So Billy's first experience getting unstuck in time was in 1944 during the war. This was before he was abducted because obviously his coming unstuck in time had nothing to do with his abduction. That's what he says. So Billy entered the army in South Carolina. He was trained as a chaplain's assistant, so a preacher's assistant. He was not given a weapon or any really war gear at all. He was never supposed to be on the front lines. The narrator talks about the umpires, the umpires in the war, and these were the men who would come giving news on what was happening. On page 31, it says, there were umpires everywhere men who said who was winning or losing the theoretical battle, who was alive and who was dead. The umpire, this time, had comical news. They had been theoretically spotted from the air by a theoretical enemy. They were all theoretically dead now. Okay, so anyway, at one point during the war, Billy was allowed to go home because his father died. Upon arriving back to the war, he was sent to the Battle of the Bulge. This was December of 1944, during the last mighty german attack of the war billy survives the battle and falls in with three other men two of them were scouts and one was a gunner and they were all very suited for war but billy was not he was not wearing any warm clothes he didn't have any weapons he didn't even have a helmet and he was only 21 years old so one of the men with them was roland weary he was the gunner he is A terrible person. He's not nice, but he keeps saving Billy's life in hopes that he will gain recognition for it. Sadly, Billy is not too concerned with surviving at this point. Roland Weary is only 18. The narrator describes his childhood as unhappy. On page 35, it says Roland was unpopular because he was stupid and fat and mean and smelled like bacon no matter how much he washed. He was always being ditched by people who did not want him with them. So this is obviously a theme in his life, being ditched, and it makes him very awful to deal with. He's always trying to make sure that he doesn't get ditched by anyone, and so he becomes friendly with people for a while, and then he beats the shit out of them and ditches them before they can ditch him. He also had some really weird parents. His dad was really into ancient torture devices, And Roland develops this same obsession. He tells Billy Pilgrim about all the tortures he's seen and read about and how he has invented his own types of torture, including his psychotic idea to stake a guy in the desert on an anthill, cover him with honey, and cut his eyelids off so he has to stare at the sun until he dies. So he's just... Like the worst type of person. He also carries a triangular knife for optimal damage. The handle is made of spiked brass knuckles. And the worst, maybe, thing about him is that he keeps a photo of a naked woman trying to have sex with a pony. It's like the first pornographic image created, or maybe like the first one with an animal. I don't really know. There's a story behind it, but it's just so gross. So. Basically, Roland Weary is just really great. So in this moment, he thinks that he and the two scouts are best friends and he secretly calls them the Three Musketeers. So when Billy falls in with them, he's not super happy about it. Okay. Anyway, the first time Billy traveled in time was in Luxembourg. He was lying against a tree during the war. He's with the so-called Three Musketeers and he travels to his birth and death and through his childhood. He sees himself as a child swimming at the YMCA. His dad had employed the sink or swim method to teach him how to swim and he threw him in the deep end. Billy did not swim and he had to be saved. He travels to 1965 when he was 41. He visits his mother at a nursing home. He travels to his son's baseball game in 1958. Then in 1961, he's drunk on New Year's Eve and cheating on his wife and he tries to leave the party and drive home, but he can't find the steering wheel in his car because he got in the back seat and he passes out. So after he's done traveling in time, Roland Weary wakes him up. He's with the two scouts and Weary, but the two scouts tell Roland Weary that they're done waiting and they ditch them, which again is his worst fear. Roland obviously blames Billy for them leaving. And in the middle of this, Billy travels in time again to 1957 to giving his acceptance speech as the president of the Lions Club in Ilium, New York. And he wakes up in the present and weary is about to, on page 50 it says, beat the living shit out of him. He beats him very badly and right before he kicks Billy's spine, which would have broken his back, the Germans show up. And Billy and Roland Weary are captured and taken as prisoners of war. Chapter 3. So the German soldiers take all of Billy and Roland's personal possessions. They find Weary's dirty picture. They take Weary's boots and give him wooden clogs in return. Billy's shoes aren't worth taking. And one of the soldiers, they discover, is a 15-year-old boy who Billy thinks is very beautiful. He refers to him as being as beautiful as eve in the distance they hear gunfire and they know that the two scouts who ditched them have been killed they are taken to a house full of other captives about 20 other american soldiers and billy falls asleep on the floor when he wakes up he is in 1967 in the middle of giving an eye exam he keeps falling asleep at work lately and that worries him he tries and fails to remember his age who he is, the year, etc. And he looks out the window, he sees his car, and the license plate stickers show that it is 1967. So he's 44 years old. He hears a siren and he's terrified because he suffers from PTSD. So he wakes up again as a soldier. He is forced up and forced to walk in line with a bunch of other war prisoners. The photographer takes pictures of Billy and Roland's feet and this becomes a popular propaganda photo showing how ill-equipped the American soldiers are. The Germans use it as propaganda. He slips back in time again and he is driving to the Lions Club. He passes through Ilium's ghetto and it reminds him of the destruction in Germany but he's driving a cadillac. He's very wealthy at the time. His son is in Vietnam, his daughter's getting married, and he is listening to a speech by made by a marine about the Vietnam War. And this man, this marine is pro increased bombings. Billy feels indifferent to all of this, and the narrator tells us that he has a prayer hanging in his office about keeping faith and keeping going but on page 60 it says he was unenthusiastic about living. So after the Lions Club he is back at home he's crying in bed his doctor told him to take a nap every day in hopes that it would help him stop crying randomly he lives in a big nice house he drives a nice car he makes over $60,000 a year which in today's world would be almost $500,000 a year and he tries to fall asleep in his bed he has a device called magic fingers which vibrates his bed to rock him to sleep but he just lies awake crying he wakes up again as a prisoner of war marching he is crying still he's in Luxembourg and Weary is ahead of him, and they are taken to a railroad yard. He is in line with tens of thousands of Americans now, so they walk all the way from Luxembourg to Germany. Soldiers are placed in boxcars, and they'll be taken into the heart of Germany. The Germans sort, the, sort all the soldiers by rank, so Billy and Weary are separated. An American colonel who was also captured who has gone a little crazy his name or what he calls himself is Wild Bob and he says if you're ever in Cody Wyoming just ask for Wild Bob which is something that the narrator and Billy say at random times as like a humorous anecdote the narrator comments that he himself was in Cody Wyoming once with his old buddy his war buddy Bernard V. O'Hare In the train cars, there's not enough room, so they have to take turns sleeping and standing. Billy's train doesn't move for two days, and even when it does, it crawls about two miles per hour. As they're in the train cars, it's December, and the war ends in May. The narrator talks about the human beings inside the boxcars helping each other, taking turns lying down, sharing the food they get, and on Christmas night, Billy falls asleep and wakes up in 1967, the night he was abducted by aliens. Chapter 4. It's the night of Billy's daughter's wedding, and he can't sleep. So he walks down the hall to her empty bedroom. He looks at all of her childhood things. On page 73, I'm only mentioning this because I think it's really funny. It says, There was a soft drink bottle on the windowsill. Its label boasted that it contained no nourishment whatsoever. And I laugh about that because I'm obsessed with Diet Coke, which contains no nourishment whatsoever. So Billy knows that tonight he will be abducted because of his time travel. He knows this. He walks downstairs. He takes a bottle of champagne from the kitchen and he turns on the TV. He watches a documentary on World War II bomber pilots. And at this moment, he's a little spastic in time, or that's what the narrator calls it and he is viewing the documentary backwards. So he's seeing it from end to beginning. Bullets are being sucked back up into airplanes from the ground and he watches it all in rewind all the way back to the making of the weapons. So he turns off the TV eventually, he goes out back and he waits for the flying saucer to come and take him. On the spaceship, the Tralfalmadorians speak to each other telepathically but they have a device that speaks English to earthlings. They ask if Billy has any questions, and he says, why me? It says on page 76, the Tralfal say, that is a very earthling question to ask, Mr. Pilgrim. Why you? Why us, for that matter? Why anything? Because this moment simply is. So they liken time to a bug trapped in amber, It's like we are trapped in the amber of this moment. There is no why. It just is. So they put Billy to sleep. They fly back to their home planet. They put him in a zoo-like enclosure that's been filled with things they stole from Earth, like furniture, and they stole a bunch of stuff from Sears. During this sleep, during his travel through the universe... Billy becomes unstuck in time again. He's back in Germany on the train going two miles per hour. So they spent nine days in the boxcar. On page 79, it said food had stopped coming in through the ventilators, and the days and nights were colder all the time. Soldiers have died in the boxcars, including Wild Bob and Roland Weary. Roland Weary died of gangrene that started in his feet because he was forced to wear those wooden clogs. But before Roland died, he had made sure that everyone in his boxcar knew who was responsible for his death, Billy Pilgrim. And a soldier that was in the boxcar with Roland, his name's Paul Lazaro, and he promises to exact revenge for Roland Weary. He promises to kill Billy Pilgrim. So the train arrives at the prison camp on the 10th day. The prisoners are given coats, and... (laughs) Billy's coat is just ridiculous it's a woman's coat it's way too small for him it has a fur collar and everyone else got like a nice industrial coat and he got this woman's coat so they're all ordered to take their clothes off and they're taken to a large shower and Billy remembers that this is also the first thing he was ordered to do on the planet Tralfalmador too. So the German soldiers are showered in scalding hot water their clothes are disinfected by poison gas and the German soldiers look at the weak American men and how skinny and small they all are. Billy observes that the biggest and healthiest American was Edgar Derby. Edgar Derby is also a prisoner. He's 44 year old. He used to be a teacher and he had to pull some strings so that he could fight in the war even though he was over the age limit. His son is also in the war. and. Edgar Derby was another man who was with Roland Weary as he died, and the narrator notes that Edgar Derby would die in the bombing of Dresden, but his son would survive the war. So remember, Edgar Derby has been mentioned before, he's the man who survived the bombing, but right after was caught for stealing a teapot and killed by a firing squad. The smallest American was Paul Lazaro, the man who promised he would kill Billy Pilgrim, and in the shower, Billy travels to when he was a baby, and his mother is bathing him. Then he's playing golf with his fellow optometrists, then he's in, back in the flying saucer. He asks how he got there, and the trial respond on page 85. They say, It would take another earthling to explain it to you. Earthlings are the great explainers, explaining why this event is structured as it is, telling how other events may be achieved or avoided. Tralfalmadorians see time differently, like I said, but then they go on and say, all time is all time. It does not change. It does not lend itself to warnings or explanations. It simply is. Take it moment by moment and you will find that we are all bugs in amber. The Tralfalmadorians also tell him that they have traveled to many planets and Earth is the only planet who talks about free will. Okay, that's the end of this episode. In the next episode, we'll cover chapters 5 through 10, which is the end of the book, and we'll go over themes, so make sure you go listen to that episode as well. And go follow Brief Podcast on Instagram, subscribe on Spotify or iTunes, whatever you listen on, so that you can get updates on when new episodes come.